Welcome to the Filmed Live Musicals Podcast, a podcast about stage musicals that have been legally filmed and publicly distributed. The Filmed Live Musicals website contains information on nearly 200 musicals that have been captured live. Check it out at filmedlivemusicals.com. And now, on with the show. Welcome to episode 41 of the Filmed Live Musicals podcast. I'm your host, Louisa Lyons, and my guest today is author, director, actor, and producer Ben Rimmelauer. His award-winning and highly acclaimed one-man plays, Patty Issues and Bad With Money, have been performed off-Broadway and across the U.S., and live recordings are available via Audible. Ben directed Leslie Kritzer is Patti Lapone at Les Mouches, for which he won a special Time Out New York Award. Ben was the assistant director on the 2001 San Francisco Symphony Sweeney Todd Live in Concert, and along with Daniel Nolan is the host of the Broken Records podcast. Welcome, Ben. Thank you for having me. It's so good to be here, Louisa, here in my right. own living room, but uh, <laughs> here in this virtual space with you. With your gorgeous shrine, musical theater shrine behind you. <laughs> yes. Well, my whole apartment is musical theater, but this living room is 100% Patty Lupone. Beautiful. We love to see it. <laughs> you actually, it's a very fitting that the wall that the uh, computer monitor is against is the West End wall. So I'm looking at Divas at the Donmar, Les Miserables, Masterclass, and Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's perfect. I love that. So to start us off with, what made you fall in love with musical theater? Well, I uh, was born in New York City, and I was taken to see some musicals when I was very little on Broadway and elsewhere, and and shown videos of musicals and The Wizard of Oz, and, you know, like many children are, and it made an impression on me, but then we moved to California away from my grandparents when I was five, and my parents were not such musical theater people as my grandparents had been, uh, as is also common. You know, my grandparents were, what do you call it, the greatest generation, you know, quote unquote. And then, you know, musical theater was very much part of pop culture when they were growing up. And my parents were baby boomers who liked rock and roll and, you know, uh, that kind of stuff. And so it wasn't as much a part of then my childhood until it was a little bit. That's not fair to say. I mean, like they took me to see Cats when the national tour came to L.A., and then like Phantom played in Los Angeles after Broadway with Michael Crawford. And uh, it actually ran in LA for four years. So it was sort of a status symbol in my junior high, like if you had the Phantom t-shirt. <laughs> and then uh, like we saw Fiddler on the Roof, like with Topol. But it wasn't until I was really like maybe like 13 or 14, I, fittingly around the time I was coming out as gay, that I was like obsessed with musical theater. And the thing that... Um, that really got got me was Andrew Lloyd Webber and Evita. And what happened was that we had seen Phantom and that was like the hot show. And we got our, our first CD player. This is so shows how old I am. Uh, we were still listening to tapes, but my mother got a, a car that had a CD player. And so she said we could each pick out a CD. And my sister got, she, I think she thought she was getting Phantom because it had the mask on the cover, but it was like the premier collection of Andrew Lloyd Webber. And it had um, tracks from all of his musicals up to that point. And it had uh, Don't Cry For Me Argentina from Evita, sung by Julie Covington from the original concept recording. And I just remember listening to it. And the song was familiar to me from the Evita commercials I'd loved when I was little in New York. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God, I, I love, I need this. And so I went out to buy Evita and only by mistake did I buy the Broadway cast recording with Patti Lapone instead of 
the uh, original concept recording with Julie Covington, but I fell so hard for Patti LuPone. And then I got into all things Patti as I was getting into musical theater. And Patti really has been my my uh, number one favorite anything consistently, you know, throughout all these decades. So would you say that cast recordings and albums were like your gateway into obviously you were able to see some productions, but that was like the the main way that you can very much. So, I mean, and you know, it's funny because all I could think then was I can't wait to be old enough to move to New York and see everything, you know, and I was really resentful of my family for taking me away. And now I've lived in New York for, I don't got 23 years and I do see everything, but I love things more when I was in high school and I couldn't see them. And it was just the cast <laughs> recordings, even terrible musicals, like the goodbye girl, you know, I mean, I remember being like, people were, my, my grandparents were telling me how bad it was. Cause they lived in New York and they saw everything. And they were, you know, my grandfather was like, ah, I saw Bernadette and Martin short on the tonight show. They both need a haircut, you know? <laughs> and I was like, sacrilege. How can you speak of the great Bernadette Peters that way? And, it was like, what do you mean? It's terrible. It's a Marvin Hamlish musical starring Bernadette Peters. No questions asked. I want, I'm going to love every second of it. And I remember being at Tower Records, 9 a.m., skipping class to go to the record store to buy it the day it came out and listening to it nonstop, learning every single song. And then I came to New York that summer for a pre-college program at Columbia and because um, I was only 17, but I was in New York for three weeks that summer and I saw every show and I saw the Goodbye Girl twice. And I didn't even have a concept of it being bad or good. It was it was Bernadette Peters in a brand new Broadway musical. And, you know, it was just such it was so exciting to me then every single show, you know, and I'm so jaded now and I hate most things. And I, I long for that <laughs> that heart that I had when I was little, you know, did you ever watch filmed live performances like on PBS? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, uh, I, and and no wonder that you transitioned right there because number one amongst those was the original Broadway production of Into the Woods. And it was so impactful to me because I, it was around that time exactly when I was like 14 and I was really obsessed with Andrew Lloyd Webber and Patti LuPone. And I was getting into all the Andrew Lloyd Webber shows, which included, um, of course, Betty Buckley uh, and Elaine Page in the two recordings of Cats and Bernadette Peters and Marty Webb in the two recordings of uh, Song and Dance and um, and all the the Evitas. But so then there was this um, Sondheim, a celebration at Carnegie Hall was this uh, concert and it was released on CD and there was a televised version on PBS. And I didn't really know Sondheim other than he had written the words to West Side Story and Gypsy and that people talked about him as the real connoisseur's uh, choice among musical theater. And so I saw this concert and then there was Patti LuPone singing Being Alive so thrillingly and Bernadette Peters singing Not A Day Goes By so definitively and, uh, and Betty Buckley the same with Children Will Listen from Into the Woods. And then there was a video of Into the Woods that I could then, you know, listen to. And it was confusing to me that it was Bernadette Peters starring in it, not Betty Buckley, because Betty Buckley was the one that blew my mind with Children Will Listen. But that concert uh, was so accessible to me as a teenager, not just that I could, I mean, literally it was accessible. I could rent the video, but but it was, I, I understood those stories and those characters. And so I You know, I think that I not only memorized the score from the cast recording, but I memorized 
the entire script. I mean, I know every single word that Joanna Gleason said as the baker's wife. And it's a detriment, I think, to our generation. Well, I'm much older than you, but starting with my generation and then all the generations younger, any production of Into the Woods has to live up not just to the iconic vocal performances of the songs, but to the iconic acting of the whole thing, because we all remember every single facial expression and uh, laugh that those actors scored. But it was extremely, uh, extremely crucial for me. And the same goes uh, with Sunday in the Park with George, with that original production. And then I started, you know, seeking those out. And of course there was also, I mean, with Sondheim, it was really a boon because there was Into the Woods and uh, Sunday in the Park with George and Sweeney Todd not exactly the original cast because it was the tour and it was George Hearn, but George Hearn was wonderful. And, and so, you know, there were other musicals, but that really was like sort of, um, you know, as they say, like in the shoots and ladders of life, that was really an immediate, I got to go from zero to 60 in terms of being a Sondheim fan from those three shows. Uh, And, you know, there was other things too. There was a little night music video uh, from the city opera production that randomly my grandparents had taped off of TV and oh. so that got me into a little night music, you know, because it made a difference. Um, I think part of the reason the Android Weber shows and like Les Mis and Miss Saigon were so impactful was because they were sung through. So the cast recordings represented the whole show, as opposed to when I would get a cast recording of something like Company uh, or, you know, even Funny Girl or whatever there's no book on the cast recording. So you're a little bit trying to piece together. What's the story here. Whereas um, those sung through shows, you got the whole thing. But then when there was a video, you got to experience the whole show. Yeah. And it's really interesting because Lloyd Webber also has had many of his, or several of his shows filmed and released like the concert versions of Phantom and, um, I was about to say limits. That is not Lloyd Webber at all. <laughs> I was but, thinking but, Cat But many of his, you're right, though, but, Cats and yeah. Jesus Christ Superstar. I mean, the there funny go, thing yeah. is none of those had been done when I was a kid. So yeah. it was not, I mean, there's now there's so much, you know. Um, it was really like a limited supply uh, when I, when I was growing up, which in a way, you know, at the time I, I mean, I think it's wonderful that more things are done and it's, it's a, a wonderful thing, but it's a resource. Um, but in a way, I was more resourceful when I was younger and things were scarce because you had to seek out what little there was and you treasured it. And now it's like, well, I prefer this controversial of Jesus Christ Superstar to that controversial of Jesus Christ Superstar, you know? Yeah. And there's YouTube has just changed the game. There's just oh, I yeah. mean, anything and everything. Oh, for sure. Whether it's I mean, legal the, or not is a exactly. different question, but there's so much available. Totally. And not only that, the even the illegal ones now are so watchable. I mean, I would watch videos of Patty and Evita that are, you know, it's, it, it's, it's even calling it a video is like an insult to like the like technology of what video is, because it's like, it's really just like, it's like, you're looking through this like scratchy, grainy, far away thing. Now you're these just looking bootlegs, at a spotlight with a, a vague silhouette of a human. Exactly. <laughs> and now every single person has a high def video camera in their pocket, you know? It's it's amazing how much the technology has changed yeah. and how it's made it so much more accessible than ever yeah, before. Which is and wonderful. yet we still have this huge resistance in the industry to filming and making. I it think it's very foolish and short sighted of the producers. And I think as these people die off and younger, more innovative people 
take the reins and are in control. We will see much more of that happening. And I think it will be to the better. I think it will help the commercial success of live theater productions and it will make theater something that is more widely uh, cherished by a a larger cross-section of of young people. Absolutely. And I want to fast forward to your one-man show, Patty Issues, which was first performed at the Duplex in 2012. That's when it opened. I mean, I did it for Mm -hmm. a long time. And I did it all over, but I even did it in London at the, um, now they call it the Other Palace, but it was the the St. James Theatre when I did it there in 2016, I think. So for folks that haven't seen it or heard it yet, can you give us a quick rundown of what Patty Issues is all about? Sure. Well, the title is a play on daddy issues uh, because uh, one of the two threads that are the um, thrust of the show is about my relationship with my father, who uh, is gay and came, like, as am I, but who came out of the closet in 1985, which was a very difficult time uh, for me to deal with having a gay father and certainly for him to deal with being gay. Um, I was only nine years old and it's a lot about the sort of drama of our relationship, which ultimately, uh, ended, uh, I mean, he's a piece of work. Uh, but the other main thread of the show is about my lifelong obsession with Patti LuPone and how I really, um, she was, you know, kind of my, uh, my escape and my sense of fantasy, but, you know, also my sense of empowerment uh, through her fierceness, particularly in Evita, as I was growing up. And then how, uh, when I was an adult uh, in New York City, my first job uh, in theater in New York was the being the assistant director of the New York Philharmonic concert of Sweeney Todd in 2000 with Patty and George Hearn. And um, then I was... And Audrey McDonald, that's exactly right. <laughs> Neil Patrick Harris. I mean, a wonderful cast of all these opera stars, Heidi Grant Murphy and um, Paul Plischka and John Ehlers. And, um, that Not bad production. for a first job with Lottie, director Lottie Price. <laughs> yes, yes. And then I assisted Lonnie on everything he did for three years, including the Broadway show A Class Act and a bunch of things. But among the things we did was a remount of essentially that Sweeney production in 2001 in San Francisco at the Symphony, which we filmed... Uh, for uh, PBS and that Lonnie won an Emmy for. And then we also did that at the Ravinia Festival. And then we went back the following year to the Ravinia Festival and then uh, did Little Night Music. And then Lonnie continued to do a series of Sondheim shows at the Ravinia Festival after I'd moved on. So anyway, I I chart how that began in the play Patty Issues. I chart how that began my personal relationship with Patty LuPone, which has been rather close ever since then. We got along very well because, you know, Patty likes cute little... 23 year old gay boys who are obsessed with her, you know, um, and, uh, and she's wonderful. Uh, but, but we had some, uh, tension too at one point because, um, Patty had given me her blessing to mount this play, uh, this show that was called Leslie Kritzer's Patty Lepone at Les Mouches, where, um, I, uh, put together a script for a one woman show, Patty Lepone at Les Mouches, that Leslie Kritzer played, Patty Lepone and we recreated Patty's nightclub act at Les Mouches that she had done at midnight every Saturday during the run of Evita, which nobody knew about anymore. This had been, um, this was 2006. It had been 26 years. Um, and that was completely forgotten. Uh, but, uh, the show was a huge success and, uh, we kept getting extended and we were touring and we got in a rave in the New York times. And then 
we were being recorded uh, by Ghostlight Records, which is the same label that had released Patty's most recent albums at that point, The Lady with the Torch, and et cetera. And um, uh, that's when Patty uh, basically changed her mind and was very upset and didn't want us to do the show at all anymore. And uh, she felt that, um, well, what she said was, it's my name, Ben, it's my name. She said, she said uh, this is all in Patty issues about me dealing with her in this conflict but she said um god i forgot my own script because I, I quote patty in it and i can't remember exactly what she said but it's like <laughs> but basically she felt that that no matter how we intended it people would see it as camp and she didn't want to be portrayed that way and she was about to open in gypsy uh at city center uh and she didn't want people to say if you want to see the real patty lapone go down to new york go downtown to joe's pub you know so that was very painful for me and Leslie because uh, we had created something that was so good and so successful and that was really so loving and honoring of Patty. And um, and then it ended. Uh, but, uh, but the good news was that then after that was sort of the dust had settled on that, I got together with Patty to produce an album of her original Lamouche performances uh, taken from th- these scratchy tapes that her musical director, David Lewis, had saved. Um, so now everybody knows Patti LuPone at Les Mouches, even though it had been totally obscured at that point. Um, mm-hmm. So that was wonderful. And so the, my show, Patty Issues, charts that whole journey. Um, and, uh, you know, someday when Patty's gone, we'll we'll do Les Mouches again. <laughs> <laughs> In the very far off distant future. Please. Yes, God willing. Because <laughs> she's going strong. Let me tell you, I just saw her last night in company again. Uh, and um, she's better than ever. And, and I saw um, the great cabaret star a few nights ago, Marilyn May, who is 94 and still belting and kicking and just doing it all. And I thought, that's going to be Patty Lapone. She's nowhere near close to slowing down, you know, I mean, yeah. I mean, Patty's just about to turn uh, 73, which is, you know, uh, considerably younger than Marilyn May, but you know, a lot of women Patty's age are slowing down and Patty's nowhere near that despite, you know, she talks about, this is my last musical dolls, but it's not even close. Didn't she say that like pre-war paint that was she said that (laughs) pre-everything she said that pre uh you know she said that literally in 1999 i'm not joking she said that i love the drama when did you decide to record patty's um patty issues when when was that recording made uh it was uh i think around 2016 i had opened um my second uh solo play bad with money and then at that point i was doing them uh in repertory and um, a man named Glenn Rovin, who's unfortunately since passed, uh, but he had approached me about doing it um, as like an audiobook format for his um, record label, Rovin Records. And then uh, he had the idea to do it live in front of the audience since I w- it was such a audience. Both of them, I mean, even those shows have a lot of darkness in them. They're, they both have a lot of comedy too. And the energy with the interaction with the audience was certainly part of the experience. So I'm glad mm-hmm. that he had that thought. Yeah. And do you, when was it released uh, or how was it first released? I know it's now available on Audible. Uh, I think it was first on Audible. I mean, I think there may, there was, um, I don't think they even pressed any actual CDs. It was like 2017 when it came out. And I think it was all, um, Audible and, you know, and iTunes and all that. But, um, but I think that was the whole deal. Always digital. Yeah. Digital. Now that CD has gone the way of the dodo. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 
it's so crazy because I'm I'm old enough to I had tapes when I was little and I yeah. remember winding them with my pencil and <laughs> <laughs> somebody else was just talking about that the other day yeah oh that's funny yeah it's interesting how you know it's it's a good and a bad thing that things have moved to digital because when the internet goes down what happens to all of this content that that is available online but not in hard copy. Well, it is important to save things on hard drives, but th- we don't need all the CDs and the cases taking up whole walls of our homes, you know. <laughs> uh, the perpetual, the archivist in me is like, what What happens when, when the, this doesn't exist anymore? What, well, what, we just, we just what have we to have hard drives. Got to have <laughs> backup and we have to have redundancy. We can't even read floppy disks anymore. It's, it's so crazy how I know. quickly we, it changes. It, the technology does change. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, it is. So let's let's jump over to Sweeney Todd. You yes. mentioned that it was your first gig in New York City. That yeah. blows my mind. So how did how did that job come about? Well, funny enough, um, Lonnie Price, his parents, uh, Murray and Edie Price, rest in peace, Edie Price, they had gone to high school with my grandparents, and uh, so the two couples had reconnected. Now, Lonnie did not grow up with my father because I don't think that they had stayed in touch after high school, the two couples. But then um, in the 70s, uh, when my my parents were already, you know, grownups and married, the uh, my grandparents and Murray and Edie Price reconnected and they became good friends. And my grandparents would always talk about Lonnie Price and we would see him and his sister Jody at certain holiday dinners and things. Um and I knew that Lonnie was an actor and like, I cared about it when I was a little older, like he was in the Muppets take Manhattan. Um, and, uh, and then he was in dirty dancing and he was like on an episode of the golden girls. And, uh, so I was, I was very aware of Lonnie in that way. And then I knew that he had moved on and was, uh, not focusing so much on acting anymore and was directing, which was already from the time I was in high school. I really, at that time, I, now I, I'm a writer and performer more than anything, but but when I was in high school, all I wanted to do was direct Broadway musicals. Um, and, uh, and Lonnie uh, was doing that. And, you know, I was, I was very aware of his work because he was doing things, you know, that were rather mainstream. Um, and um, so I had reached out to him. Oh, no, I ran into him, actually. When I was a freshman in college, I, um, my parents had taken me to New York for spring break. And they were flying back to LA with my brother and sister who were younger than me. And I was flying back to Berkeley where I was in college and in Northern California. And so I was by myself waiting for my flight and my flight um, was overbooked and they offered me, you know, what was like a $400 certificate if I would wait three hours or five hours, whatever it was and take a later flight. I said, okay, fine, I'll take it. And so I'm waiting and I go to the newsstand and I buy a New York Times and I open it to the art section and there's a great big photo of Patti LuPone and said after her uh, humiliating firing from Sunset Boulevard, her return to the stage in the United States will be the City Center Encore's production of Pal Joey as Vera Simpson, May 7th through 9th or whatever the exact dates were, which was like six weeks later. And I went right back to the counter with my $400 certificate and I said, I want a round trip from Berkeley, from Oakland, California to New York for May 7th. Uh, so, uh, so I was, 
uh, I remember I, I called my parents when I landed and I was like, oh my God, this was such kismet that I got it. And they were like, what the hell are you doing? You should be in school. You don't have money to go to New York City. I said, the plane ticket's free. They said, where are you going to stay? What are I was like, goodbye. I'm 18. Figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, but it really was fate. I mean, because I, um, I went to Pal Joey and of course it was absolutely thrilling. I mean, of all the things I've ever seen, Patti LuPone walking out onto a New York stage, her first entrance in that show, after everything that had, she'd been through with Sunset Boulevard, everything that had been in the press, the reaction, I mean, it was, it was, it was religious, you know? Yeah. And, um, and it was, it was such a experience of us as the audience giving her love. You know, she hadn't sung her a note. She hadn't spoken a word yet. I think she had one line. She came out and said something like, well, do they have enough room for the guns in those? I don't know. You know, she had some kind of a patty moment, but it was like, and it was just like a wall of just insane standing ovation that wouldn't stop. And so of course I had to be there. And then at intermission in the lobby, there was Lonnie and uh, who had directed it. And um, I went running over to him and I was like, hi, Lonnie. Uh, and he was like, hi. And I was like, <laughs> I don't know if you remember me. Um, you know, I'm Dottie Schmonis's grandson. And he said, Oh my God, I can't, I haven't seen you since you were, you know. Um, and you know, he said, What you are you at least so high? <laughs> exactly. You know, and he said, What, you know, are you in school? I said, Yeah, I'm at Berkeley. I'm studying theater. And he said, Oh, do you want to be an actor? I said, No, I want to be a director like you. And he said, Well, you know what? Let me know if you ever want to assist me on anything. I'm in the book which was, you know, the phone book back in the day when that was a thing. And so um, <laughs> I got back to college and I, I called Lonnie and I kept in touch with him. And then uh, he already had an assistant when I was done with school. So I had gotten a job. I worked on the TV show Spin City for a year when I first moved to New York. But, uh, but then not a whole year. Well, actually, I did an internship at the McCarter Theater in Princeton for nine months. Then I worked on Spin City for nine months. And then, so it was like a year and a half, but then Lonnie had Sweeney Todd starting and it was, it was perfect. And he had taken me to dinner a couple of times after I moved to the city. And, you know, we, we talked about what he had coming up and where I, what I was doing and all that. And, but anyway, it was a great thing. Sweeney Todd was a great thing for me to start out with him on because, um, as a concert version, it was only two weeks of rehearsal. Uh, so of course Lonnie had been preparing, you know, for a lot of time before that, but if he didn't like working with me, it wasn't like he had to grin and bear it, you know, but we loved, uh, well, I, you know, we, but we loved each other and we loved working together. So I wound up staying with him for three years and, uh, worked on some great projects, but of course that was incredibly exciting, you know, and then to get to work on the filming of it was special. And, and it made me appreciate something from my childhood going back to Into the Woods and Sunday in the Park with George which was that um, Sunday in the Park with George, uh, they brought in a television director, Terry Hughes, you know, who you'll see his name on the credits of like the Golden Girls and other things to film it uh, for television. Um, but with Into the Woods, James Alpine had established himself at a much higher level. Uh, and he said, no, I want to make some films and I've been learning how to work the cameras and I will... Um, direct the cameras and you see the difference. I mean, as brilliant as Sunny in the park with George is the filming feels very much like you hired a videographer to preserve the stage show. Whereas the into the woods production, clearly James Lapine knows exactly where to focus the camera every single second of that piece. And it's why it's, um, 
all things being equal between the two stage pieces, it's such a more effective uh, filming of it. And that's something that, you know, Lonnie had already been working as a television director for years, directing soap operas was how he paid the bills as an actor, actually, in the 80s and and 90s. And so Lonnie was really ready uh, for that uh, challenge with Sweeney Todd. And of course, Lonnie's gone on to direct so many filmed musicals uh, in the years since then. Um, But, uh, you know, as well as the Sondheim birthday concert when he turned 80, uh, that iconic uh, show, and you know, uh, but you but you can tell. I mean, Lonnie really works uh, the cameras, and you know, I mean, Lonnie was when we got to San Francisco. Lonnie was in a a, a, a truck behind the the theater, watching you know the bank of seven cameras. Not me. I I was three champagnes in, sitting in the you know front row mez enjoying the show. <laughs> but I but I went with him to the editing uh, a lot in the months that followed. It was fascinating, you know. I I want to rewind a little bit to what you were talking about with Sunday in the Park and Into the Woods, and I think I'm remembering this correctly. The audience would, it was a special performance of Sunday in the Park. It was filmed after it was closed and it was a special performance just for the, the tape. No, I don't think that's true. I think the show was still running. Mandy and Bernadette were gone already uh, and they were brought they back. back. Uh, but it was, the show was still running. Uh, and same with Into the Woods. Bernadette and Joanna and probably some other people and were Chip, gone and came yeah. back. Yeah. And, but what I'm remembering is that. In Sunday, That's the audience true. Uh, were directed Passion, to be. By the way, excuse me. Yes, um, Passion was filmed after it closed, uh, with and that no was filmed audience. With, yeah. yeah, no audience. That's right. But what I'm remembering for Sunday is that it, the audience were directed to kind of, kind of keep their responses down to be muted for the cameras, whereas Into the Woods it was just filmed. And so I, I think that exchange of energy between the audience and the actors is not captured in the same way in Sunday. Totally. That's so interesting. I never heard that before. And it makes so much sense that really, yeah. uh, that, yeah, I mean, people don't, so many people have so many bad ideas. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so interesting, like this divide between film and television and theater and this fear of combining them. And there are very few people who are really, really good. Like Lonnie is one of the the masters of it is who is able to see with the theatrical eye and then how that will work on film. Yeah. It's, it's a very rare gift. Yeah. I mean, Lonnie went on in addition to all the shows he directed that he directed for television. He even directed things for television that were other people's productions. I mean, like, uh, I mean, of course, Lonnie directed the New York Philharmonic company and then any film that for television, but Lonnie also filmed the television taping of the the John Doyle production of Company with Raul Sparza, and Lonnie filmed the television taping of Gypsy with um, Imelda Staunton, mm-hmm. the ultimate betrayal of Patti Lupone. <laughs> Although I suppose <laughs> she betrayed him first because uh, after he directed her in Gypsy at Ravinia, um, uh, she then did it on Broadway with Arthur Lawrence directing. But I don't know if that was Patty's uh, under Patty's control. <laughs> the inside gossip. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so going back to the uh, this New York Phil slash San Francisco Symphony, sweetie. Yeah. Um, what was Lonnie's approach to the show? I've read that he thought of it as like uh, Pacific Overtures meets Sweeney Todd. This idea of like Kabuki theater almost um, implemented on Sweeney. Yeah. Well, uh, that Kabuki theater might be a little farther than he went, what he took from Kabuki, um, which Lonnie knew well because Lonnie was the ultimate um, 
I mean, I know so many people that are obsessed with musical theater and have these encyclopedic knowledges, you know, but Lonnie really takes the cake. I mean, Lonnie was such a theater nerd growing up. He invested his bar mitzvah money in the Angela Lansbury production of Gypsy and in Pacific Overtures. And he was an intern in Hal Prince's office when he was 14. And, I mean, it's so funny that just a couple years later, they cast him in Merrily Roll Along. I mean, he, it's got to be inspiration to every intern everywhere, you know. Uh, but of course, Lonnie was incredibly talented too. But um, but he was very smart and knowledgeable. And so he remembered all the stuff he learned from Hal's process on Pacific Overtures, which of course was done kabuki. And one of the things he took from it when he approached the Sweeney Todd production um, was that uh, how, because Lonnie felt after having directed a few uh, of these concert versions, most notably he had done Pal Joey with Patty at City Center Encores at that time. He went on to do many more, but at that point he had done Pal Joey at City Center Encores with Patty and he had done Annie Get Your Gun with Patty at um, Lincoln Center Theater uh, with Patty Lapone and Peter Gallagher um, in like 1998. And so going into Sweeney, and I think maybe, I'm not sure whether he had, I hadn't worked with him yet on those, so I don't know to what extent he had had this thought yet. But definitely in Sweeney, he was leaning into the kabuki tradition of these things called koken. I think it's K-O-K-E-N, which were the um, stagehands who could appear on stage uh, all in black, and I think they were special black gloves, and could hand off um, props and things, Um and he felt that they could serve some of the, because Lonnie really wanted to do, he and Patty both felt very strongly that they didn't want actors holding scripts. They really wanted it to be a fully staged concert. I mean, essentially the only difference between these Lonnie concert stagings and um, a fully staged production is that there's a less intense budget for costumes and a much less intense budget for set design uh and the orchestra is on stage and the rehearsal process is cramped but full full staging um maybe choreography is somewhat diminished too but certainly the physical staging and the actors are totally off book it actually got me in trouble because a couple years later when i was on my own i directed a concert version of snoopy with sutton foster and christian borrell and Anne harada and harada yeah great people (laughs) jen cody hunter foster and devin may um but I went in thinking I was going to do it Lonnie Price style. And, you know, Sutton was still doing eight shows a week in uh, Thoroughly Modern Millie, you know, and they were all like, uh, back it up, kid. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> you're lucky you got the gig and we're not putting our scripts down, you know. Um, so that was an interesting learning yeah, but experience. they did it with Lonnie, so why not? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, I was like, but, 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 but. Um, but also, uh, shout out to Snoopy. I played Snoopy in college. It's one of my favorite shows. Such a it's good show. Just so delightful. It Revival, really is. please. Yeah, that, that needs to be remounted. Um, yeah. And the version I put together for that concert, uh, Larry Grossman, the composer, was there, and he said it's the best uh synthesis of the different versions that had ever happened. So we should get that license. If anyone's listening from Music Theater International or Samuel French or whoever licenses it. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, so uh, so the Koken were a kabuki thing. And, and, you know, for example, in Sweeney, 
the Koken holds a stick that has the little bird that Joanna is singing to in Queen Finch and Linnet Bird. And um, the Koken were especially instrumental in doing things with the, um, the murders in the pie shop because, you know, there's a lot of business that has to happen on stage in Sweeney. And Lonnie wanted to do that in a um, uh, artistically satisfying way, but without being able to have the full uh, trappings of that you would have in a more elaborate physical production. And, you know, I mean, in a way it's just a sort of different take on the same philosophy behind like a John Doyle production. I mean, I think, you know, or even something elaborate like a Julie Tamor Lion King, that bread and puppet tradition, uh, it's elaborate, but it's not meant to trick the audience into seeing something that looks real. I mean, you know, if you go see the Harry Potter production on stage, it's so real. I mean, my friend is in town with her little kids from San Francisco and they would see Harry Potter and the kid was saying, oh, the CGI was so great. And I'm like, well, <laughs> you know, it's not CGI, <laughs> but like, but it feels like it because they have found a way with technology, even on stage to just seem real that what do you call the, the dementors in Harry Potter? It, you, you actually feel like there's something floating above you, you know? Um, and it's so you know, it's so theatrical, but it's theatrical in a way that's almost cinematic because it feels so, it's realistic. As opposed to this kind of theater, the Julie Tamer thing or the Kabuki, which, you know, or John Doyle, what Lonnie was doing in Sweeney, which is that you see the strings attached. It's not that you're being tricked. You know, it's, I guess it's more Brechtian because you're always aware that you're watching a theatrical presentation that's not real, but there's something so artful and that really is essential to how it's how you're experiencing the story, you know, and, and it's especially fitting for musicals because, of course, no matter how good the acting is in a musical, people aren't singing in real life. So, you're, you know, part of you is never allowed to forget that. And I love the way that that device heightens the like there's minimal props and the like the really the only props are the um, are Sweeney's razors yeah and and the um the, the case that they come in and the stools by the way um, those razors were the original uh razors from the original production that george hearn had had on the tour as well oh that's super cool yeah did did he have them or were they in storage somewhere i think he had them actually you know oh, that was production was not supposed to be george hearn it was originally a near philharmonic production with Bryn turfel and then they cast patty lapone and then she requested Lonnie be the director. And then Bryn Turfels had back surgery and had to pull out. And it was only a few weeks before the production started. I, I was originally like, oh, I'm assisting on Sweeney Todd with Patty Lapone and Bryn Turfel. Now, everyone I know that's an opera star, uh, that's an opera fan, was like, how cool. I didn't know who the hell that was. I was more excited when he dropped out and it was George Hearn. But, you know, for some people in the opera world, that was different. Oh, but that's cool because it, it, he came, he was able to do it later in 2014 when that's the new right, film, Thompson, when Lonnie yeah. did uh, Sweeney yeah. Todd again, which I also adore that production. Such a fun staging, the way yeah. uh, you think it's a, a reading and then they, they tear it all apart, which I just yeah. adore. Um, and I also love in the 2000. 2000 slash 2001 production the it kind of reminds me of the hanamichi the the platform that's behind the orchestra it's mm -hmm. like instead of being out across the audience it comes across the orchestra I yes i'm sure i'm sure that i'm not as schooled but i'm sure lonnie would tell you that was inspired by that also yeah and the, i also love uh the color palette of this production the black and white where it's mostly very black 
yeah. in color and the the very tiny touches of red and Joanna and like the little touches of white on um on Anthony and yeah. Yeah, there and John is obviously all in white. Like I, I love that color palette. I, I the costumes I thought were fabulous by Gail Brassard. I think that the concept was called deconstructed dinnerware. <laughs> I mean, if you look like what George is wearing as Sweeney is Prada. It's like very <laughs> chic and modern, but in a way that feels somehow gothic also. Yeah. And um, and you know, and Patty in a sort of different spin on that, it's sort of like Laura Ashley in Hell or something, you know. But uh. But I, I, I loved um, what they wore. And you mentioned this kind of divide between opera and musical theater. And it's something the critics spoke about in the original, the New York Philharmonic production. Yeah. Like, is this opera? Is this musical theater? Question mark. Where did Lonnie see it? or And where did you see it fitting in that between those two worlds? You know, that's interesting. I'm not sure what Lonnie's take on that would be. Um, I mean, there certainly was a lot of press about that question, even as we were doing it. Um and I think Sondheim always sort of brushed that question aside and would say, uh, by the way, one of the great things about that experience was that Sondheim was extremely present during the process um, in all three cities. I even got to smoke a joint with him in uh, at the Ravinia <laughs> Festival. Um, and uh, and he would always, Sondheim would always brush that question off saying that um, if it's performed in an opera house, it's opera. And that really, you know, there's different styles of music uh, that are more common in the different forms, but that there are other, but there's the difference is only stylistic. Um, and um, uh, I remember being very disappointed when we opened at the New York Philharmonic that our New York Times review was by the music critic. I mean, it was a great review, but it was by the music critic and not by the theater critic. And I, uh, for some reason, that was sad to me when I was 24. Um, but, uh, well, I felt like he didn't have, the, what do they know? He didn't have the context to talk about what I wanted to hear him talk about, you know? Um, but, uh, I mean, for me, the big advantage of that context though, was the orchestra. I mean, I, I, I love Sweeney Todd so much and I've seen so many incredible different productions from John Doyle's to the pie shop production. Um, and, uh, and I will continue. I, I even like the movie, but, um, but the score will never feel as satisfying to me as when it's played by a symphonic orchestra, you know, um, because it, it has them. I mean, the reason I think Sweeney, uh, has appealed and been performed in opera houses almost from the beginning, um, Actually, I've seen the City Opera production at one point when Elaine Page came over to do it here. Um, but it, but it's been happening at City Opera since the early 80s um, and operas all over. But I think, um, I mean, the score has muscularity anyway, and there's consistent underscoring. Anyway, the score is thrilling when it's played by a... Um, uh, by a full, by a full orchestra. orchestra. Yeah. yeah. And it, the what struck me when I was re-watching it this time was just how how much the strings add to it the mm. like it's just it makes it that gothic scary uh really dramatic sound it's so so beautiful so beautiful i mean and yeah. joanna i mean when he sings joanna the way that orchestra just comes crashing to the end of that song it just rips you i mean you sit there and you're like how did anybody ever say sondheim's music wasn't melodic it's like <laughs> This is the most soaring romantic ballad ever. It's and I love the in um in Joanna's number before that um Greenfinch and Leonard Bird 
where she's standing in front of the harp and I'm mm. obsessed with that staging because the symbol of it, like the idea of her as an angel is this beautiful, innocent creature standing in front of a harp. Like totally. it's just so gorgeous. I mean, that Lonnie is so genius with that stuff. I mean, it always impressed me on Sweeney later, other shows I worked on. I remember when we were recording the cast recording of a class act, Lonnie could give a note uh, to the sound engineer about the most subtle, minuscule things any piece of the uh, band was doing at any point. Um, you know, and, and of course with the orchestra at Sweeney, Lonnie knew exactly where all the sort of gold was buried in the hills of that, of those orchestrations. Um, mm-hmm. Talking about Broadway versus opera orchestrations, I'll never forget Patti LuPone, um, the very first uh, sits probe of Sweeney at the New York Philharmonic Patty walks out onto the stage of uh, Avery Fisher Hall, now David Geffen Hall. She's looking around and she shouts out to Lonnie in the house, is this where the band's going to (laughs) go? About the fucking Philharmonic. (laughs) Where the the band were not the band the orchestra were not present for this moment i'm guessing <laughs> they, they were filing in but they you know there were still open spaces that she they hadn't taken up yet um salt of the earth although i will say you know what patty is very uh she's a huge fan of classical music and um and classical dance too and she is very schooled and you know when the second violin does what bow i mean she's she she knows that world I think she might have just been being funny, but, you know, she is funny. <laughs> just, you know, the local band at yeah. New York Philharmonic. Yeah. <laughs> when was it decided that the San Francisco production would be filmed by PBS? Well, um, how did it all come together? I think... Um, I believe uh, a man named Michael Bartlett, who was the artistic coordinator of the San Francisco Symphony, uh, had been aware of what happened at the near Philharmonic. And I think, no, I think what happened was that we had done it at the Philharmonic when Wells Kaufman was the artistic administrator of the Philharmonic. And then Wells Kaufman in the year after that left the near Philharmonic to become the president of the Ravinia festival, which is the summer home of the Chicago symphony. It's a beautiful place uh, to go, by the way, it's outdoors and just a magical experience to see shows there and, you know, to go to concerts there. Um, and so Wells wanted to bring Sweeney there. I'm not sure if what happened first was Wells wanting to bring Sweeney to Ravinia after he had already presented it in New York and now he was at Ravinia or first, first Michael wanted to bring it to San Francisco. Uh, but those two dates came together and they were a month apart in the summer of 2001. Um, and then uh, I think because I think we had been in touch with um, Ellen Crass who had produced um, the television broadcasts of Sweeney Todd and sending, I don't know about Sweeney Todd, but sending the park of Georgian into the woods and, and other things. And, um, and her team, I think there had been interest in doing that in New York, but the budget hadn't come together in time. And then I think that when the new dates came up, 
they then got to work. But there was it still was a big undertaking financially. And I don't think that it was confirmed that we would be doing it until close to the actual um, dates. Uh, wow. And uh, like, I think that was 2001, a class act. We were doing a class act in between first at Manhattan theater club and then on Broadway and a class act opened on Broadway in March of 2001. And like, I remember even like the Tony awards, like we were like, we're, working like on the presentation of the show for the Tony Awards in June of 2001, which was only like a month before we would go to San Francisco. And it already, uh, I don't even, I think even then things were still somewhat up in the air about whether the funding would come together in time for, to film in San Francisco, but it did. Um, it's amazing to me. And yeah. Ellen Cross is someone who else is very important in the world of filmed theater. You should have her on the pod. Oh, that is my dream. She she inspired the entire website. Um, when I saw the 2011 production of Company filmed at the New York Philharmonic, yes. um, there was a pre-taped interview in the cinema screening where she said she'd had trouble getting funding for t- for filming Company in concert because no one had heard of filming a live musical for distribution. And I like sat up in my seat and like, you know, like we've talked about like growing up watching Into the Woods and I was like, wait a minute, who hasn't heard of film? Like, this is crazy. So I wrote my thesis on it and then built the whole website. And Does she know that? I, I've reached out to her. I've, I would love to, I would, I would love to speak with her. Have, again. have I interviewed you heard her from her? her thesis. No. Oh, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to um, reach out to her for you. She's oh, got to talk so to you. thank you so much. Yeah, I would dreams <laughs> she like she's just such an amazing like sh- we she's responsible for so many of these captures and yeah. the groundwork that she's done like it's crazy to me still like even all these years later people are so resistant to it and we have like how important these captures are not only for preserving our history but for providing access to people and not just in the United States, but around the world yeah. to this work. Yeah. And it's like, it's so, like, it makes me crazy to hear that, like, this has been, I mean, it's just, it's decades of work that she has done yeah. to make this happen. Totally. Oh. <laughs> um, so we get to, the funding comes together. It's it's a very quick rehearsal process. I mean, everyone had done it already in New York, most people. Not Victoria. everyone. I mean, yeah. it, it was uh, Patty and George and Neil and Davis Gaines and John Ehlers as the Beatle and um, Stanford Olson as Pirelli. But we had a new judge. We had a new beggar woman. Beggar woman. Uh, we had a new Joanna. And um, uh, so, yeah, so uh, Victoria Clark, who had not really become a star. I mean, this is before... Um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, light in the piazza. And, um, I think that Lisa, um, oh my God, I'm blanking. What's her Roman? last name? Lisa Roman. Thank you. I love her so much. Uh, I think she had maybe played Joanna in a production, but certainly not ours. And had she been Christine yet at that point? Yes. She had been Christine for years, uh, in San Francisco and LA too, maybe, or she, I mean, she had done a lot. Um, and, with Davis Gaines as the Phantom. <laughs> yes, with Davis Gaines as the Phantom. And then, um, uh, what's his name uh, that played the judge? Um, oh my God, I'm going senile now. 
um, Timothy, uh, Timothy Nolan, mm-hmm. who had played both Sweeney and the judge many times over the years. So, so they knew the material, but they had not done our production. And not to mention the fact that the production um, had been, it had been over a year. And, you know, I mean, you know, and we were doing it in a new space and, you know, Patty had been doing uh, other stuff. And so had George, I mean, everybody had, you know, so it was, um, it was, we we had the same amount of rehearsal we had the first time, you know, uh, but uh, I remember we went to, Lonnie and I went to Patty's house in Connecticut for a few nights and stayed over to just sort of crash course her in the material, which of course, you know, was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. But, um, uh, <laughs> but, you know, I just remember rehearsing like in Patty's basement, you know, just like her running through her stuff, like over and over and over and over and over again. And that's like, it's not easy material. It's, it's dense and it's wordy and yeah. rhythmically complex. Yeah. And then on top of all that, you have a full symphony orchestra and the symphony chorus yeah. with who are not just standing up the back in the risers, they're moving around and they have blocking. That and was my acting. job. I, I was, I was assigned to direct the chorus. And I love how much they're featured in the film too, that you, you, there are lots of close-ups on their faces and yeah. on, on their work. And it's yeah. I, as a chorus member myself, I've, it's really great to see the chorus featured. Yeah. <laughs> And so what was the process of filming? You mentioned earlier you, you were enjoying the show in the in the mess, but... <laughs> well, you know, the thing is, I mean, in a way it was kind of the best of both worlds because Lonnie, um, Lonnie worked so hard and really and knew, he knew the material so well. And he had a complete plan for the... He had in his mind, what all the camera shots were for all seven cameras. And he he had in his mind a plan of when it was going to be which camera that would be used, but he still had all six getting coverage, you know, Mm. and he knew what, so it's like, in a way he almost storyboarded it seven times differently. And that way he had so many options. And I remember him quoting to me his, um, his mentor uh, as a television director uh, whose name escapes me, but he was a man that he had uh, learned from directing the soap operas, uh, who I think is a soap opera legend, Gary something maybe. Um, But anyway, uh, apologies to Gary, but, uh, (laughs) but it was something like um, about television directing. It's like, you've got seven cameras, only an idiot's not going to be able to get the story. (laughs) Um, which, you know, Lonnie would joke about, but I mean, but, you know, but, but of course, especially with a live performance, you very easily could lose it, you know? Um, but Lonnie was just so thorough and so prepared and he just knew that material. Like I said, you know, every single subtle thing happening in the orchestra, every lyric, you know, inside and out. And, you know, Lonnie is really an actor's director. He really understood the ins and outs of what makes George Hearn's Sweeney Todd great, what makes Patti LuPone's Mrs. Lovett great. Um, And so was able to, you know, feature them. I mean, I thought he did such a beautiful job um, with, uh, you know, as a Patti LuPone fan, 
who lives for the moments when Patty gives a side eye about Mrs. Mooney has a pie shop, you know, or lives for the way she like unhooks her, her jaw and yeah. lets out the, just the belt <laughs> voice, just like explode out. You know, Lonnie knew how to capture that most excitingly. Pirelli at the end of mir- the miracle elixir hitting like almost like a tenor in the old cartoons where you see like the epiglottis, you know, as he hits the note, <laughs> Lonnie really knew when to zoom in and what, you know, it just, he just had such excellent taste for how to maximize everything that is great and enjoyable and important in the storytelling. And I really think it's such an ideal version of the show. Totally agree. And what was, you mentioned earlier the editing process, how long was that and and what was involved in that? Well, it was tricky because um, I mean, in a weird way, sort of um, resonate resonant of the time that we're in now uh, we were at the Ravinia festival. uh, It was like the end of August of 2001 And um, we got back to New York City and September 11th happened. Mm. And the um, editing bay we were supposed to use was downtown. And the whole downtown was closed for a certain period of time. I mean, if you lived there, you could barely get there, let alone to work. Um, So, uh, and it was a really scary time, you know, so it kind of slowed it down a little bit. But uh, in my mind, it went on for months and months. But I know that's not true because... um, it was released, it premiered on Halloween. Halloween, yeah. But wait, was it Halloween the following year, maybe? I don't remember exactly Jack, when. Yeah, but it was Halloween, you're right. Uh, no, it had to be Halloween the following year that it was released, because I also remember ahead of the release, Lonnie rented a um, a small uh, uh, cinema uh, to have a private release party that was very exciting. Sondheim was there and, um, you know, these people. Um so it must have been, so like, and I think that was in the summer. So I think, because by the way, the other thing was the audio. I remember it was a big deal. This was one of the first things that was being done in 5.1 Dolby Sound. But that was sort of required a whole other, that's where I was sort of like bored. I mean, you know, Lonnie could sit there and be like, oh, you know, this string part sounds better when we bring in the left channel uh, on top of the right, you know, but I was like, it was very exciting to watch him uh, in the editing bay, you know, see the main camera as in whichever one he had previously designated to be for that moment. And then all the other six cameras there, uh, the alternate options that were available and then the different things he had cut together, you know, at different points. And it was just very cool. Um, and uh, and even in, um, you know, even we were in San Francisco for maybe three nights. And I remember even being in Lonnie's hotel room and he already was looking at, you know, the dailies from the pre and it was like, uh, you know, my mind at that point to watch it on a laptop screen, I was sort of like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, but Lonnie was already just doing it, you know. Wow. And what, how brilliant to have, he has like a very artistic brain that can like put the production together, but then this technical brain that's able to film it and like two very separate parts of, of the think of the thought process and the creative totally. process to be able to put both of them together. It's so I mean, I think, you know, with Sweeney, he would tell you that he had the advantage of doing it first for the stage and then uh, 
So that was, you know, we already had the book from the New York Sweeney of all the staging to work from in San Francisco. So then, you know, Lonnie could sort of relax. He certainly gave me a lot more directing responsibility in San Francisco with Sweeney Todd. And then he had, then he even did in the future uh, because he, it was already done by him in a way that he liked and I could just sort of recreate it and he could be focused on the cameras. Um, Whereas, you know, shows he uh, televised things he did later on that I was no longer working for him, like the Candide or the company. um, uh, He was doing them all at the same time, this, the staging it and the directing the cameras. That's I I can't even like fathom the amount of work that that takes to be prepared for both of those things. Because the the filming was kind of uh, decided late in the process, was anything changed, or even while you were doing the performances, was anything changed on stage, like blocking or lighting or anything like that to accommodate for the cameras? Very little staging-wise. I mean, you know, part of the um, beauty and of having the seven cameras, and one of the things that Lonnie probably... Um, one of the main reasons Lonnie would veer from whatever his original plan was, I mean, obviously the point was to be open creatively to see if he had better ideas of which camera to use. But um, but one of the reasons technically that he might have often had to change his original plan in terms of which camera to be on at a certain moment was because there were cameras on stage to get mm. certain kinds of close-ups and traveling shots. Who, those cameras would then sometimes be in a shot. So those would then not be the shots that would be used. Um, so that that was another thing. And lighting, absolutely. We had to use a different lighting designer who was experienced in television. And the lighting, I would say, looked worse in San Francisco than it did in New York on stage because it looked fabulous on camera and had to be specifically hmm. conceived for the camera. You had to have think- compromised stage lighting in order to have the ideal product. I mean, it wasn't bad, but... It had to, that had to be the the God that it served rather than purely being about just being beautiful and effective on stage. Um, and I, you know, I think that that uh, is probably a common uh, situation. It's just going back to what you were saying, even with bootlegs where, you know, especially in the old days, you would just be looking at a spotlight, you know, it's stage lighting does not read on camera uh, and uh, even a good camera is still going to work. It's, you're going to look better with lighting that's designed for the screen. Do you think that having cameras on stage or having to adjust the lighting, does that impact the audience's experience of the people who are in the theatre? Well, I don't think they certainly noticed the difference in lighting. I mean, I barely noticed it, and I had just seen the better version in New York, you know, but I'm sure Lonnie had moments where he was like, oh, God, I wish this could be this lighting, you know. <laughs> but, like, I, I think that gets into a, a subtle level that maybe if there's a lighting designer in the house, they would be like, ugh, why did they choose this? And then you'd be like, because we're filming it. They'd be like, oh, okay. But, um, so, I, you know, I think that only affects the audience in a very subtle way, but it, it certainly is to the detriment, however subtle, the cameras, uh, for the most part, no. I mean, I think, you know, it, it's kind of, a, in a way, it's almost an extension of the thing with the kabuki stuff, where it's like you're already watching a presentation. And I think, you know, it's it's almost like it makes it more exciting. You know, it's like if there's a sense of an event, you know, that we're seeing the one, you know. Yeah. Don't tell them that it's being filmed tomorrow and the night after, too. <laughs> <laughs> But you are very special. <laughs> you are here for the the, the performance. Yeah. 
before we move on from Sweeney, um, do you have a a favorite moment from from being a part of that production? Yeah. Um, uh, God, I mean, so many. I mean, <laughs> uh, I mean, apart from smoking, uh, smoking a joint the joint with Sondheim was pretty great. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, just there were so many moments that were so great, just in terms of my experience of Patty. Um, but at keeping it more tied to the actual material, um, I think maybe my favorite moment, which sadly is not preserved, was uh, in New York at the um, Sitz Probe. It was the first time that Sondheim was part of that process. Um, then he was around for the rest of that, and then he was around a lot for San Francisco and, and Ravinia. Well, Ravinia, he just came to the show and hung out. But but San Francisco, he was really in the room. Um, but New York, he hadn't been around until the Sitz Probe. And we were doing the uh, finale. And it's the, um, you know, uh, uh, of all the demons of hell, come to torment me, my Lucy! You know? And um, Patty said to Steve, what am, I sp- what am I supposed to sing here? It's like, Oh no, not lied at all. You know? And she's like, I'm looking at the score and it's just X's where there should be a note. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just jump in wherever. And she's like, what do you, I, I, what do you mean? What, what did Angela do? And he's like, actually just jumped in, whatever. It doesn't matter, Patty. It's, it's not, a, it's really, it's, it's supposed to be just jumping in wherever, which is the, by the way, every other moment with him is him being like, no, it's gotta be like, hmm. This is a 16th note, not a dotted. Yeah, eight, like, but this yeah. <laughs> was written to be freestyle, you know? And Patty was like extremely um, uncomfortable with that because she was working so hard. It was her first Sondheim show. So then uh, I think maybe we did it once and she sort of was really ha- holding back and it wasn't really landing. And, um, and, Lonnie was like, I can't even hear you or something like that. And, you know, so then we did it again. And what Patty did was the most thrilling thing I've ever heard in my life. It was like, she was like, oh, no, not lied at all. No, I never lied. Such a took the poison. She did never said that she died. Poor thing. She lived. But she, but it left her sick. I'm getting the lyrics mixed up. That should have been in hospital, wound up in Bedlam instead. Poor thing. Better you should think she was dead. Yes, I lied because I love you. I'd be twice the wife she would and she was just belting it out and it was the most dramatic climax to the whole show and she's like I love you cut that thing out care for you like me and it was like I mean I just remember like holding my breath in just like complete dazzlement and like um and and Patty looked so like she needed um like she'd really put herself out there because she was just like singing out this huge vocal line, you know? And I was just like, just falling out of my chair. And then like, so the thing was over and she's like, was like that Steve. And he was like, and he was like, yeah, you know, whatever, just jump in. And she, I was like, no, tell her yes. Tell her yes. God damn it. Tell her yes. And I'm like looking at Lonnie and Lonnie is like, not even like giving a f- and like, uh, and then she never did it like that again. 
You know, I mean, she sort of, she kind of did it. She did the acting like that and she sang on those rhythms. Mm -hmm. But like, you know, it was like, could that thing I've cared for you like me? And I was like, and and it's just the whole line. She had done it all in one breath. Just more than I could do in describing it to you. She sang from the, oh no, not lied at all. That whole line straight through, just like, just, just bigger. And it was so amazing. And Someday I'll direct Sweeney Todd and, you know, uh, I'll make sure that it's sung that way. I probably doubt anybody else can have the lung power. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what a special moment to have in your heart and in your memory that, yeah. you, like you say, hasn't been preserved for prosperity. No. <laughs> oh, Ben, this has just been so much fun. I have a series of questions oh, uh, that I ask all my guests. Great. You don't need to think about it too much. Whatever comes to mind is fabulous. There wonderful. are no wrong answers. <laughs> what is your favorite musical? I would say Evita. I mean... It's easy for me to go in circles off of that, but that's that's the best answer for me. I mean, otherwise we could be here all day and I'll never choose, but it's Evita. I'm with you. It depends what mood I'm in, what day it sure. is. <laughs> Do you have a favorite filmed live musical? Oh, that's an interesting one. Um, I would say that, I mean, <laughs> I feel stupid saying it, but I would say that Sweeney Todd with Patty and George, you know. It, it it holds such a special place for you, of course. <laughs> but it's like, I, I really think I enjoy it as a fan, you know, because I, I, I'm just such a fan of the piece and I feel like that is the best representation of it. And, uh, and I, I, it's just one of my favorite Patty performances. Um, it's, I feel like she really is in the perfect sweet spot of doing her really acting and really serving the material, but really just being such a diva at the same time, you know? It it feels, I, I think of the word unhinged. Like yeah. her, her Mrs. Levitt is so unhinged, but and, she has so much control over it. It's not yes, crazy. It's unhinged. No. <laughs> and, and no one's ever sung it like that, you know? And, and I mean, I've seen great women play the part, but, but she really, she really gave up a, a thrilling Patti Lupone vocal in that performance. Totally. I wish that that audio album was available streaming for people because it was like a special New York Philharmonic Records release and it never, you know, the children don't know. It was never on iTunes. It's certainly not on Apple Music or Spotify or anything. And they're missing out because it was something. This is the downside of digital. Not everything is available. Well, listen, uh, that that went out of print on CD. So it's don't blame digital. <laughs> I do. I still blame digital. (laughs) Uh, A filmed live musical is not quite a stage show and it's not quite a movie. So what should we call it? Oh, um, how about, uh, you know, you've heard of MOTW, which is a movie of the week. Yeah. How about MOTV, which is a musical on TV? I like that. That's cute. MOTV. Where do you stand on bootlegs? I love them. Let them roll. I wish more people would bootleg more shit. <laughs> Listen, it uh, should it should not be done in a way that's annoying or even distracting in any way to anybody in the theater. You know, we've all paid our tickets to see the performance. We don't need to, like, move our leg for this guy's, you know, tripod. Or we shouldn't have a bright light in our face or anything, you know. So that is, I think, the people making the bootleg should be held to the same standard of audience behavior that everyone is. But within those boundaries, if they can create that content, I don't think that hurts anyone. I think that it is good 
for the success of the show. I think it is good for the success of the actor. And I think that the idea that it's not is false. What stage musicals do you wish had been filmed? Oh, God. Uh, well, Evita with Patti LuPone and Gypsy with <laughs> Ethel Merman and um, the original productions of Follies and Company and A Little Night Music. And, um, uh, uh, I mean, you know, Liza and Cheetah in the Rink, although maybe that's a stretch <laughs> since it was a flop. But, uh, you know, I mean, just so many. I mean, I, I think everything should be, you know. Yeah, me too. What would you like to see filmed in the future? Hmm. Uh, well, there's a brilliant new musical that has just started previews on Broadway called A Strange Loop that won the Pulitzer Prize last year following its run at Playwrights Horizons. Um, and it is, I'm sure, I'm sure I shouldn't jinx it by being so confident, but it is such a good show and people are, are appreciating it so, um, intensely that I, I feel like it will be filmed, um, so, but that is one I would for sure like to see filmed and I'd like everybody to be able to see um, the brilliant original cast and Stephen Brackett's brilliant production because I'm sure this this show is so impactful. I'm sure that ultimately it will be produced everywhere. Uh, but I, I hope that people will all get to experience this really terrific version. I can't, I have my tickets for a couple of weeks, so I, I cannot wait. I'm, I'm nervous now because like shows have started canceling again. So I'm like, oh, let me yeah. be able to see it. Yeah, you, need, you, need, you need backup dates always. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and finally, where can we find you online? I am at Ben Rimmelauer at on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and YouTube. And I'm on TikTok, but I, at my age, it's unseemly to create content there. I think I just watch. Um <laughs> And uh, and they can come if they're in New York City every Monday night at 8 p.m. at Club Coming. Daniel Nolan and I host Cast Offs, which is a Broadway variety, wait, Broadway music variety and game show. Yeah, and it's free Mondays at 8 at Club Coming. And soon we'll be launching the Cast Offs podcast, but that's a couple months away. Yay. Well, Ben, thank you so much. This has just been such a treat. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. The Filmed Live Musicals podcast is created and edited by your host, Louisa Lyons. With thanks to our wonderful patrons, Josh Brandon, Gerilyn Brewer, Belinda Broido, Elliot Charles, Gillian Dos Santos, Rachel Esteban, Mercedes Esteban Lyons, Rusty Fox, David Jones, James T. Lane, Alison Matthews, Al Monaco, David Negrin, Amy Penn, Gerald Piper, Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, David and Catherine Rabinowitz, Joe Tillotson, and Beck Twist for financially supporting the site. FilmedLifeMusicals.com is the most comprehensive list of film stage musicals. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. If you would like early access to this very podcast, early access to site content, the full weekly newsletter with info on upcoming streams, and exclusive access to the streaming calendar, become a Filmed Live Musicals patron for as little as $3 a month. And if you're outside the US, you can sign up in your local currency. Visit filmedlivemusicals.com to learn more. If you like what you hear, please leave a review through the Rate This Podcast link in the show notes. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and thanks for listening.